Welcome to Luke Melpass from Stuff here in the Press Gallery. Luke, great to have you on um, a Hoon of Gallery Wonks. Thanks, Bernard. It's uh, it's awesome to be here, and it's nice to actually do it in person. So often at the moment, we're you know stuck in the purgatory of Zoom, and um, so it's actually nice to sit here and um, and have a conversation in the studio. And you're definitely not on mute. Um, in person, you can't. Be no, on mute. no, exactly. No, no, no. So um, this week has been pretty shocking in lots of different ways. Starting off on Monday with the government. First sort of hinting behind the scenes a bit, then having a cabinet meeting and coming out with a 25 cent cut in the fuel excise levy and halving of public transport uh, fares, which uh, sort of came out of the blue, but maybe not if you were looking at the polls the previous Thursday night. Yeah, so I mean, you know, at face value, it looked like a bit of a knee jerk response to uh, a particular poll, which was on Thursday, which showed National Head of Labour for the first time since the 2020 election. However, um, I think it is probably a response to a more... Well, there's two things, right? Labor's polling has basically been gradually coming downwards since elimination um, was abandoned. And I don't think it was the abandonment of elimination per se, but, but elimination was quite a, a simple thing uh, that was achievable until it wasn't. And then after that, it all becomes much more much messier. There are the trade-offs between kind of, you know, personal and economic uh, liberty on the one hand and health become sharper and they require more active management. And I, I think the other thing was that uh, up until that point you had kind of government, epidemiologists, business more or less all in the same, you know, there were gripes around the border and that sort of stuff, but basically uh, New Zealand's elite, if you will, was on, the, was on the same page. And after that, you know, a lot of people had, had different ideas, so it started to splinter and it got more difficult. Uh, so I think on polling, really, it was it was the it was the continuation of a trend. Um, on the other side of it, of course, um, it was you know I think the polling probably reflected the issue, which is inflation, which is a real life issue. You know, this is not a confected thing. It is a thing that you know whether you call it a crisis or a problem or whatever you call it, uh, it is something that is clearly now being felt by everyone. The uh, war in Ukraine uh, bumped it, you know, oil markets have, um, I mean, I noticed that the, that the price has now dropped off a bit again, but, um, but you know, there's an oil market price shock. I don't think it constitutes an energy crisis, which is what the government came out and, 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 and said on Monday. There's plenty, plenty of energy, there's plenty of oil, there's no lights out, uh, but it was certainly a price shock, and I think that um, the politics probably demanded that they do something, and this was probably the only thing you could do at very short notice that literally made a difference the next day. And then, of course, that effect was compounded by the fact that oil prices came down, so petrol got got cheaper than just the 25 cents. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's a really unusual thing because governments don't like cutting taxes because they're quite hard to put back up again. And I seem to remember that uh, Tony Abbott at one point cut a fuel tax and then it, it he struggled to get it back up again. So, so the, the, um, I started writing a column where I put this in, but I ended up um, um, ditching it, um, I think. But So this is quite an interesting thing. John Howard in John 2001 Howard. Um, cut and then cut the rate of the fuel excise in Australia and then abandoned indexation, which they'd had every six months and they'd had it... Uh, I think since Paul Keating was treasurer in the 80s. Now, it took until 2014 
for that to be put back. And that is actually the one of the primary reasons why petrol is quite a bit cheaper in Australia than it is here, because instead of the petrol excise ratcheting up every every sort of six months uh, for about 13 years, uh, it decreased in real value. So um, uh, not unheard of, very difficult to put back on. If I were to uh, put odds on it, I would say there's a 50% chance that it won't be put back on before the election. Yeah, because now um, we don't have a clear timeline or system for putting it back up. It was very sort of vague, you know, three months to start with and then we'll do something that depends on the price, uh, leaving lots of options open. And of course, when you start putting it back up, um, it's a pretty easy attack to say government increases taxes. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, this is this is uh, quite legitimate, just a straight up tax cut. I mean, it's temporary at the moment. Uh, it's quite expensive. It's, of course, tied to the um, land transport fund, um, uh, which, you know, moving into the future, it doesn't necessarily need to be, but it is. So that money needs to be found from somewhere else. And, um, and yeah, I think the term that Robertson used was, Grant Robertson used was... Um, stabilizes when the price stabilizes or drops and i asked him um uh, what that meant and he sort of you know i mean essentially the answer was when are you going to put it back on well it depends <laughs> depends on what well you know we'll, we'll just see what happens yeah, yeah. Uh, and nothing to do with the polls of course um we'll watch those as well uh, um the other side of the announcement was that was quite a surprise the idea of halving public transport fares and you sense that it was part of the political mix to um, fend off probably some grumpy greens and those who actually think about climate policy and worry that cutting the price of petrol maybe is the wrong signal to send if you want people to use less petrol. Well, that's right. I mean, I think I think it basically was a way to um, keep people who say, well, you know, you're just, encou- you're just encouraging gas guzzlers in cars as a way of sort of uh, keeping all those people off, off their back a bit. Um, I think it is important to note, because uh, I've heard this a couple of times in the government's defence, that petrol tax was never intended to be an environmental thing, right, when it was when it was first brought in. Now, there is the ETS part of it, which has remained untouched, and that is the climate bit of what you pay at the pump. But that has remained untouched. They haven't done anything with that. Um, you know, fuel excise is a revenue-raising thing, and then it was hypothecated to help fund roads. So... Um, so the fact that you were cutting it on the basis on which it was formed is, is, sort, of, is sort of neither neither here nor there. But it does highlight how that hypothecated fund is completely dependent on fuel excise. And as in theory we move to electric cars, uh, that makes that connection between fuel excise and road maintenance and building hard to maintain. You'll have to come up with some other system. Well, I agree, I agree with you entirely there. And I think, uh, to be honest... Um, the announcement uh, the other day, in a way, highlighted how kind of weird and slightly unsustainable the whole current system is. Um, the fact that, it, that the money's hypothecated into a fund and it only gets spent on roads, uh, I don't, actually don't know the historical background of it. I assume it was to make sure it got spent on roads rather than just going into the pit of general revenue, but I don't know that. Um, and. There's no real reason why you need to set it up like that. And as you say, with electric cars, at some point soon, they're going to have to go to a road user miles system anyway. Um, there'll be congestion charging probably. I mean, it won't necessarily be this government. But a government will have to grapple with that in the next five or ten years. 
because at the moment, um, you know, all you out there in electric cars, good on you, but you are freeloading on the roads. And 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 uh, and so at some point there will have to be a there will have to be a charge brought in, and, and I suspect the whole system will probably need overhauling in some way. So the other shock this week was um, Simon Bridges uh, pulling his stumps and um, striding out. Uh, what did you make of that? Um, bit of a surprise, uh, but unsurprising in another way, I guess. Yeah, it doesn't look like there was any particular scandal, skeleton in the closet, anything like that. I mean, it is, um, I wrote earlier in the week, I had an interview with him, he, um, he's sort of been thinking about it really off and on for two, for two years, and the way he put it to me was, there wasn't a single day, because quite often politicians here in Australia say, basically, there was one week where on Monday I had to go to Wellington or Canberra, and I just thought, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I'm leaving my kids at home, I just, you know, I just don't want to do it. He said it wasn't anything like that for him, but it was just over a period of time, the number of days where he thought he should go began to outnumber the days that he thought he could stay. And in the end, with the, with the, with the good poll result for National, it didn't look like he was upset about anything, you know, sort of rat abandoning the sinking ship or anything like that, and, um, and kind of went out, went out on his own terms. And I think, I think the other thing is that he, that he pointed out, which is true, is that you know, he's 45 years old, he's still, still a pretty young man and has time to carve himself out some sort of other, um, some sort of other career. So um, I think it'll be a big loss for National. Uh, significant amount of experience, 13, 14 years, been a cabinet minister and was really the, I think he was the best exponent of retail politics in the National Party. He was really, really good, at, had a real eye, and you saw this pre-COVID, he had a real eye for issues that would both infuriate the government and that mattered to people and distilling them down into understandable bite-sized chunks and having the discipline to repeat and repeat and repeat until it sunk in. And I think you could see some of uh, that kind of political training, I guess, behind this cost of living crisis campaign that the, Na- that the National Party uh, has been running. And I think the other point about Bridges was that uh, as opposed to sort of the rest of New- um, National's top leadership team now, he was more conservative. I don't think he's ever as conservative as a lot of people um, um, sort of thought he was, but definitely uh, more conservative on social issues and also quite a happy cultural warrior. You know, he was very happy to take a whack at probably, you know, school curriculum or white privilege or, um, you know, treaty stuff or gangs, law and order. Very happy to get into that turf. Uh, whereas... Um, uh, the sort of top of the National Party now is more kind of people who that is not their area of comfort and, you know, not really what they believe in the same way. So he represented an important part of the party there, I think. And it's interesting, in the last, you know, few months, uh, Christopher Luxon has been more disciplined on the cost of living crisis, banging away at it, and it really caught fire three or four weeks ago uh, when it was hammered away at again in Parliament. We had those inflation figures, the oil price took off. We had this constant drumbeat of you know, rents, food, fuel, and then suddenly everyone went, yeah, it is a cost of living crisis. And then the Prime Minister, for a day or two, refused to accept that it was. And uh, it, it's interesting that now that uh, Judith Collins is not there and is not trying to push those culture warrior buttons, Christopher Luxon has a clear path to focus on the economy and uh, you know, give me back my tax money uh, um, message, which is 
clear, understandable, you know, in tune with the values of that people have of national, and just avoids getting dragged into these horrible culture war rabbit holes, along with all the people who um, were outside Parliament for three weeks and who I think are a long way from the mainstream. Um, I was I'm interested in in Simon Bridges and that he's the he's the almost could have been uh, you know Prime Minister February 2020 before COVID. National was ahead in the polls. He could have been Prime Minister within 18 months. Jacinda Ardern was in trouble. And if it hadn't been for Coven, it may, it may well have been Prime Minister Simon Bridges. And then, of course, there was that um, Facebook post which uh, seemed to catch the tone just a little bit wrong. And before you know it, um, Todd Muller was in there and that was it. Uh, it's an extraordinary sort of political could have been story. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, you, you're totally right. In February 2022, just before the 2020, sorry, I mean, the election turned out to be nine months later. And uh, he was he was looking very good for it. And I, I sort of thought at the start of 2020 that it was going to be incredibly tight because it really would just hinge on what happened with New Zealand first at that point in time because he had two major tasks, right? It was to keep nationals' numbers up and the other thing was to get rid of New Zealand first, because there was no way National could win with New Zealand first. You knock those, if they got the top share of the vote, you knock New Zealand first out and probably tip them over. Maybe ACT would bring in a couple of people. Um, you know, that was all not to be. But I, I always thought the interesting thing about that Facebook post was that in the end, it was probably just made two months too early. Yeah, I mean, if you read it now, it's everyone will go, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's but probably at the about time, right. It, it, for a lot of people, it felt like some sort of, um, you know, betrayal of the national cause, which it wasn't. It was just a opposition politician asking some hard questions, which is his freaking job. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I don't think there'd be too many people in the National Party who uh, would say that the move from Bridges to Muller was anything but an unmitigated disaster. I mean, they just had a lost, a, a lost two years. You, you went to Muller, um, you know, he flamed out, and then you got Collins. Who no one, you know, who had about six supporters in the caucus, and 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 leveraged that into the leadership because half of the caucus didn't want um, uh, didn't want Bridges back because they thought he'd extract you know a bit of utu, and the other half were like, well, this will look, will look like a total shambles if we put him back, um, <laughs> and so in the end, he, in the end, he didn't even um, he, he he didn't even put his hand up, uh, but yeah, I think I think it is it is a it is a a, a remarkable story of really a sequence from the National Party's point of view, a sequence of very unfortunate events and some and some quite bad decisions. And at the time, the the idea that um, cratering out in the in, in in the polls, which it turned out wasn't a crater, it got worse, but that getting about thirty percent of the polls on the back of what was a very successful COVID recovery, middle of a pandemic. Um, that that should be the basis for suddenly rolling someone was just um, was just ludicrous. Yeah, that must be a slightly awkward uh, conversation when they bump into each other at the Tauranga supermarket. Um, <laughs> but um, onwards and upwards, Nicola Willis as mm. National's finance spokesperson. Um, what did you think of that decision and what do you think it says about where National's headed? Well, I mean, I think it was generally considered that her or Chris Bishop um, both uh, Wellington-based list MPs, uh, both 
former political staffers that one of them would get would get the nod. Um, I think probably uh, the view is that Nicola is more um, uh, level-headed, I guess, than than, than Christopher Bishop, um, and and I think probably there's a bit of a bit of a sense out there that um, that you know um, Bish can turn some people off. And uh, you know whether or not that's true, I don't have a particular particular view on that. But that's kind of what you hear. Um, and um, you, her first outing in Question Time, I thought was 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 a strong one. One of the things that I noticed quite a bit about it was that she really she she based all of her parliamentary questions on basically people who had written to her. You know, she published a speech on Facebook or put it out via you know whatever mailing list they have. And people will respond and come back, and she basically read those, and that's interesting for two um, for, for two reasons. One is that it brings the abstract kind of macroeconomic uh, here's the inflation rate down to real issues, you know, like real people saying, "Well, you know, I'm struggling to put food on the table or whatever." But also, it's very, very, and, and it avoids the lags in the data because like inflation is almost certainly worse than the 5.9 percent but that was a few months ago um but also like it's quite it's quite hard to argue against um you know if you're if you're grant robertson or whichever um government minister answering questions on it's hammering away day to day with people who are who are doing it tough um it'll be interesting to see how long she does that but it's it's kind of an interesting um change in approach i guess yeah and the tone of what she said in the last couple of years and her focus I think on being a bit more pragmatic and trying to come up with some new ideas is quite different to what we saw with Woodhouse and Bailey who were you know pretty old school keep it dry don't borrow the money um, don't spend the money you know give us a tax cut sort of uh, conservative politicians whereas both Nicola Willis and Chris Bishop have been open to the ideas around different types of infrastructure funding or yes. you know building the odd mm. railway here and there. You know they they do come from urban backgrounds and also uh, I get the sense with Nicola Willis that she's a she's a more she's closer to the centre than some of the other players in national who could have got that job who may have had that job in the past. Yeah, I I, I think there's also a um they're younger politicians as well, and I think that they are probably both of the kind of view that it's... Neither of them would argue the toss that New Zealand actually needs a whole lot of better infrastructure. The question is, how do you set it up? What, how, do you, how do you make the pipeline, and then how do you fund it? And I don't think, there's a, I don't think that there's a... Um, uh, a and, and so that's quite a kind of a different thing to just uh, sort of talking about debt. Yeah, I think, I think they Which are... Which is so big it's abstract. It's yeah, just it doesn't mean anything to I know. those. It, I think, though, they are open to new ideas. And um, when you look at the government's achievements with the opposition, uh, the sort of really unusual things that came out of left field and that actually might make a difference, the um, three-storey townhouse nation mm. thing, which my sense was Nicola Willis drove... Um, is 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 one of those things that um, shows they're willing to reach across the aisle and go outside the um, 
the bounds of what was considered the normal, you know, uh, part of the debate on economy. Yeah, and I think I think also um, from Willis's perspective, she understands that uh, this great line from sort of Margaret Thatcher's advisors or ministers, can't remember who it is. He was talking about when um, when Thatcher sold uh, sold council houses to, to to Brits, they could buy them, and this was considered a great political achievement because they said, well, you know, they all came, became conservatives because you have something to conserve. And I think definitely uh, in the National Party longer term, property owning democracy for a centre right party is really important. People can't afford to have their own house; they don't have skin in the game in the same way. And so it's not just. I mean, I, I have no doubt that um, that she thought it was the right policy for New Zealand, right? But also, longer term for kind of the you know the, the institution of the National Party and centre right politics is also important. And she she has talked a lot about this um, property owning democracy. This is a core national value, and has done something about it. But also, can um, make it resonate when talking to real people, uh, mm. which. Uh, you know, that's a skill, that's a retail politician skill. I also think um, her um, election as the deputy and that very high profile finance role is part of Christopher Luxon's attempt to reach out to suburban big city moms, you know, who, who national need. National needs younger voters. Mm. I mean, there's, 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 there's no doubt about it, right? Mm. Um, and so I think the they um, will have that pretty near top of mind. Mm. I've been thinking about which, which of the voter segments we, we lost over the last, basically since 2017, and, and, and you know, how are we going to get them back and get new ones? Now, just uh, the other big thing I think that's happened in the last week that uh, maybe isn't part of the whole political horse race but still really matters, and we had an act of parliament that was passed because of it, New Zealand's in a really tough position now where our main trading partner is potentially going to be sanctioned by our main security partners over Russia. Now, we don't know for sure yet. The Americans have said that China has decided to help Russia by sending drones and missiles to Ukraine. And that America has said, if you do that, we'll look to sanction you which really does throw the cat amongst the globalisation pigeons and puts us in danger in that we are getting closer to have to be forced to pick one side or the other. Now, Australia is, um, and it was interesting to hear uh, Scott Morrison talk about that Chinese help for Russia as an abomination and to um, say, yep, as soon as China does that, we'll be out there sanctioning them. And... Uh, the idea of New Zealand launching sanctions against China <laughs> just scares the uh, s- scares the trade policy analysts out of out of us. You know, just the idea of it is scary as hell, and uh, you could see the government is wary of um, going down on either side until everything's out in the open. And of course, the the Chinese way is to be very uh, careful and opaque about it to give yourself. The option to to um, pull away, and uh, I just think it's really interesting now that New Zealand, which for so long has been able to you know dodge and weave and sidestep and be nice to everyone, could be in a position where we're forced to choose. Uh, and 
I sense the government's not ready, the opposition's not ready, and it's it sort of reflected in this sort of last minute uh, under urgency uh, passing of very specific legislation having a go at the, the Russian oligarchs. Mm. Do, do you think that um, the scale of this challenge is being thought about across New Zealand? That, you know, we could be in a position where Australia, the UK, the EU, Japan, and uh, the United States sanction China, and we have to think about which way we go. I don't think anyone thought it would come so soon. Yeah. So, essentially the aim of New Zealand's foreign policy in Australia has basically been the same up until very recently, has been to avoid choosing between your security guarantor and your main trading partner. Now, in New Zealand, that's been obscured a bit by you know various politics of nuclear-free and stuff since the mid-'80s. So New Zealand, I think a lot of New Zealanders don't feel that we really sit under the US security umbrella, which is, in my view, totally inaccurate. Mm. New Zealand definitely uh, um, part of the rules-based sort of order. It's very um, cheap defence. It's very cheap. <laughs> yeah, we, we get, yeah, they, they subsidise us. You know, we're the freeloaders Donald Trump was talking about. <laughs> um, us and everyone else. Um, but, you know, I, I think, and I think probably there has been a bit of, um, in sort of the diplomatic officialdom, there's been a bit of a view that we'll just be able to kind of keep doing that Muddle through, yeah. you know and and frankly i think new zealand has done a, a very good job a significantly better job uh with china than australia has because you know we've avoided a bunch of um uh um what's the word uh um language that kind of amps things up um that the um that the australians sort of haven't for, for various reasons that we can get into if you want to but i mean it was in my view, there was always going to come a time where New Zealand was eventually going to have to choose. And it may be, it may be you know, over a war in Ukraine. Uh, but it also might not be. It might not be, might, might not be for decades. Um, but, you know, I think um, it, it's an extremely worrying thing uh, for the world. Because if, if sanctions go on China, essentially you have a new Cold War, if not a hot one. And you've got behind you you know, you've basically got the sino-russian world and that sits behind a kind of uh, curtain of uh, sanctions and separate financial systems and then you've got the west and then you know probably everyone else what that used to be called the third world and um and it's a big problem for australia and new zealand because 30 percent of our exports 40 percent of australia's exports go to china at the moment particularly the iron ore uh, the Australian sell to China is um, essential for China and they can't get anywhere else, which I suspect powers some of the Australian um, bravado. When they start. Uh, it, it definitely does. I mean, there, there, there were a number of arguments made in Australia by the kind of national security establishment a number of years ago saying, well, look, we can actually afford to be uh, more bullish on China and, um, and stand up for more things because they have to buy iron ore on our, um, off us. New Zealand with dairy is not. Quite if only the they could position. make buildings out of milk powder, we'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so um, that is that is a worry. This potential clash, on the face of it, China is pretty sensible about things, quite pragmatic, uh, doesn't shoot itself in the foot, um, seems to think a lot clearer and longer terms, and uh, 
Vladimir Putin does right now. But, you know, Xi Jinping hasn't criticised Putin yet. Um, uh, you know, the, the, there was this No Limits Partnership signed before the Olympics. And Xi Jinping has been, you know, pretty hardcore on a whole bunch of things where he could have backed off. You know, he doesn't muck around. Well, I, I mean, you know, I'll probably be proven wrong on this in a week, but I suspect that, that China will uh, not get particularly involved in Russia. They have, they have Xi's Chinese dream, which is to turn China into a fully developed country by 2049. Um, that all of kind of China's kind of institutional and economic energy it's going towards that goal. And a big part of that um, goal, of course, is, uh, is expansionism in the South China Sea um, and delegitimizing the US down here in um, the Asia Pacific region. Um, but it's not going to be without challenges. And I think, it, it, I was just thinking on the way in here, you, authoritarians, the longer they are in charge, the less uh, reliable they get. And Putin is a classic example of this. Uh, you know, he's been there on and off since 2000 now, been there a long time. Xi is, is, is fascinating because the hallmark, and I think the amazing innovation of the Chinese communist system, was that they had devised a way to have the um, peaceful transfer of power in a non-democracy. And that was that you had eight years and after four years, essentially, there was a signalling process that went on about who was going to be the new president, and then it handed on. Now, she decided that... Um, he broke it. He broke it. Mm. And, and if you can't have... And this is... This, if, you, if you can't have any sort of peaceful transfer of... Any sort of way of peacefully transferring power, the whole system um, can become much less stable over time. So I think that's something to really to really kind of keep a bit of a keep a bit of an eye out for. And I think um, if if not in public, then behind the scenes, uh, I know that there's a bunch of ministers and officials actively thinking about how do we diversify fast and quiet. And uh, and I think in the next you know four or five years, we're going to have to stump up with a bit of extra money for defence. Uh, you can see the Australians doing it, with getting hold of the, the nuclear-powered submarines, making a decision in the last couple of weeks about where they're going to have their base. And uh, the Australians have been always grumpy about our skimpiness on, on defence. Um, we're going to have to spend a bit more on that stuff if we're going to... Oh, I uh, think so. And I think, I think the Biden administration, uh, that is much more of a traditional... Uh, U.S. security umbrella alliances type worldview will be expecting more of us, and I think it was quite. I think you made the point earlier about the about the the very specific bill on Russia, and but saying, look, we're going to explore. We want to do basically a bipartisan sanctions bill, but we want to we want it to actually go through the full process. And part of this is because at the moment, because New Zealand doesn't have any sort of autonomous sanctions regime. If, for example, the US says, well, you should, uh, you, you know, puts pressure on us to apply them for, I don't know, the Uyghurs or it could be anything around the world, we can say, well, look, we don't have anything in legislation, we can't do anything about it. Whereas, you know, once, <laughs> and we still don't, we've got a specific one on Russia, um, but once something like that is in place, then, um, you know, there are, there, are, there are officials for New Zealand and it does give uh, less optionality, I guess.
Well, at least if we um, spend a bunch on some ships or planes, we should get a free trade deal with America out of it. That's one thing we should do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Luke Milpas, the um, uh, political editor at Stuff, thank you very much for being on a hoon of Gallery Wonks. Hey, thanks so much, Ben.